Last night we were uh, sitting at, at one of the funniest things I heard. We were sitting at, at Washington, D.C. when uh, the, the fireworks were going off. We were in a plane uh, delayed for a multiple time yesterday that we were delayed. It took us over 24 hours to get home. Um, we're sitting on the plane and the captain comes on and says, if you'll look out your window, there's a really big firework display going on behind the plane. <laughs> you, you can't see behind the plane. I don't know if he's looking in a rearview mirror or what, but I don't know. What, what, look behind the plane. Thank you very much, Mr. Pilot. So uh, anyway, we, are, we did get home and, and got to just see a few fireworks as we were flying. You know, we are celebrating the 233rd anniversary uh, of our nation's independence, uh, of the freedom that we possess in the United States. And, and I think even something more unique than a, a particular nation's independence is the independence and, and freedom that we have as individuals inside of our nation. That is, is what is truly unique. Uh, and we think on this weekend of the literally hundreds of thousands of lives in this nation's history uh, that have, have been given on the field of battle to preserve, to, to advance, not, not our land in our way, but to advance freedom. For others, and uh, and we celebrate, we celebrate that freedom. We got all kinds of symbols for celebrating this weekend, from picnics and cookouts to decorations of red, white, and blue. If usually, if we can fit a lake or an ocean into that, it works even better. Uh, and then, of course, the biggest uh, symbol of all the the fireworks that we that we watch each July Fourth. You know, when we think about independence, we think about freedom. And, of course, what we have in our nation is temporary. A nation, by definition, is going to be temporary. Uh, it's a good time to think about the freedom and the independence that we have in Christ, which is eternal, which is permanent, which is lasting. And that freedom that we have in Christ also has symbols. And we're going to look today at what those symbols are. The symbol of the Lord's Supper, and as we've already seen displayed this morning, the, the symbol of baptism. We're going to continue today... In our, in our What Is series, we've got 20 questions that we're working through. We've already answered the question, what is the Bible? What is God? What is God the Father? What is God the Son? What is God the Holy Spirit? And now we're getting ready to take on two weeks where we're going to look at, or two Sundays where we're going to look at, what is the church? And, and we're going to begin that look today by looking at these symbols of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now, you know, I'm thinking, you know, we hear that. Oh, man, Lord's Supper and baptism. Well, that, that'll be interesting. It's not really what I need right now. You know, I need to pay a bill. I've got a big thing I'm working on. I need God's help. I need God's strength. What, what does this really have to do with what I need? But, you know, folks, there's a couple of reasons that I think taking a moment to study uh, these two symbols is so important. First of all, if you'll look across the landscape of, of Christianity, we've got a whole lot of denominations, don't we? I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but you know what separates all these denominations? By and large, it's their understanding of this event right here and that event right there. And there's certainly some church governance issues or some other theological issues. But by and large, we have kind of separated ourselves out over our understanding of the Lord's Supper and baptism. We ought to be thinking, why is that? And, and, and what do I believe about that? What does God's word say about that? And more importantly, what does it mean to my life? Because, folks, I think these events, these symbols are a whole lot more than kind of a, a religious duty we fulfill every now and then. They're to have an ongoing and everyday effect in your life. These should have power in how you're going to live 
this week. So let's go ahead and take these two things on today. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I want to start in a passage that doesn't mention either one of these. But I think maybe helps us understand as we think about how denominations have broken up. Gives us a a running start at how we're going to understand these two things. So turn with me to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we've got some in the chairs in front of you. If not right in front of you, it should be around you somewhere. Hopefully you can reach one or somebody can hand it to you. We're going to run around on a few passages today. And and so you're going to get to flip back and forth a little bit. But we're going to start in Galatians chapter 3. Go past the Gospels, Acts, Romans, Corinthians. You'll land in Galatians. Galatians 3. I'm going to begin in verse 1. You foolish Galatians! Okay, right away, you know, okay, apparently Paul's got like a burn in his saddle or something. You know, he's, he's got a problem here. It's a little bit of a rough way to start off. You foolish Galatians, who has hypnotized you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified? You know what, I, I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Now, remember, we talked about when do we get the Holy Spirit? We've talked about that. We receive the Holy Spirit when we're saved. So he's referencing back their salvation. When you were saved, when you received the Holy Spirit, how did that happen? Was it by works of the law? Was it by how good a person you were? Was it by you covering your, your religious duties, your religious ceremonies, your, your, your rights? You've got those covered, you did enough of them, and now you've got the Spirit. Is that how you were saved? Or was it by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? After beginning, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now going to be made complete by the flesh? Did you suffer so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, now what's going on here? Clearly, Paul's, you know, a little upset. He's getting after these Galatians pretty good. What's happening? Well, this letter, Galatians, is actually the first letter written in the New Testament. This, is the, the, the book, this book was written in 49 A.D., first book. So you can kind of look at this. This is the first word God speaks in the sense of having it written down for the Scripture. And what is the issue that he's addressing in this very first book of the New Testament that he writes chronologically? And this is the issue. In Galatia, there's a group of Jews who have come to faith in Christ. They're Jews, but they've accepted. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. They believe in Him. But now they've come back around the barn and said, now while we've got this faith, we, 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 we need to be circumcised. I mean, it's not just enough to believe. If you don't believe and get circumcised, then, then you're not really saved. And, and so they're adding something. It's the cross plus circumcision. It's faith plus circumcision. And it's at this point that Paul says, you fools! What are you doing? And he, and he asks them a question. He asks them two questions. First question, were you saved by the works, the religious rites, the religious duties that you did? Or were you saved by faith? Now, he anticipates that they're all going to say, oh, oh, yeah, Paul, we, we were saved by faith. We were saved by trusting in Christ. And then he, so then he asks the second question, okay, well, then when, when did it stop being about faith? When did it become your faith plus then the things that you're going to do? These religious rites, these religious ceremonies. 
And, and Paul's point here, folks, is it never stops being about faith. It's about faith when we come into a relationship with Jesus. It's about faith as we try to walk in and live in that relationship with Jesus. And it is about faith as we step into heaven and into our glorification with Jesus. It never stops being about faith. We have been freed from that. You know what, folks? When you're working, leave so much guilt, so much insecurity. That's why the average person, when he leaves church, feels guilty. You know, you know, did that pay my penance? Did that pay my dues? Did I do enough? Did that count for something? And we're trying to earn. We're trying to work. And, and that's what Paul's referring to in Galatians 5.1. Flip over one page or, or wherever it lands in your Bible. Look what it says in Christ 5.1. Christ has liberated us. He has freed us into freedom. Therefore, stand firm and look at this. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. You don't have to submit to the slavery of trying to be good enough. Trying to dot the I's and cross the D's and when, and when you lay in bed at night, hope it was enough. You're pretty sure there's an angry God up there and you hope you've done enough to, to make Him happy. Man, God, Jesus has freed us from that. The Scripture says we have been freed from sin. We have been freed from death. And we have been freed from hell. We are free. We have a victory through Christ and folks when we come to this table or when we go through those waters we're not doing this trying to earn something we're not doing this trying to win something we're coming here to celebrate what we already have in Christ what he earned what he won for us we've been freed from all this now folks this is where I believe and in my my point here is not to be divisive it's it's not to to try to begin a debate with another denomination but folks here's where I think a lot of denominations get it wrong in my opinion my humble opinion because you, you may come you may come from a denomination that taught you had to be you had to it, it's faith plus baptism or or maybe even they put baptism before faith you're baptized as an infant and then you add faith later. A lot of denominations teach that when we come to this table, there's a, a sacrifice taking place here and, and Christ is still being sacrificed and we're still trying to work out our forgiveness and, and hopefully if we do this right and we do it enough, we're going to get God's forgiveness. We're here trying to earn it. We're here trying to, to get it. And that's the point where Paul says, No, you foolish Virginians! Man, you've been freed from all that. We're not coming here to earn. We're coming here to celebrate. We have the victory through faith in Christ. So you're like, well, so are you, are you saying that this isn't that really a big a deal? That, that it's not that important whether we're baptized or, or, or whether we do the Lord's Supper? Oh, no, it's extremely important. You, you know why it's important? Just one reason. Jesus commanded it. That should be enough, isn't it? He commanded that we go through those waters and he commanded that we come to this table. Not trying to earn something, not trying to win something, but that we go to these places and we remember. We remember. You know why we need to remember? Because we forget. That's why every one of us is commanded to remember because we forget what's been won for us. And we stop living in light of what's been won for us. So he's put these symbols for us here. Now we know they've divided us all up into these different kinds of churches and everything, but man, what does the scripture say? 
What does God want us to understand about that? Well, I'm going to take an attempt, uh, at least to show you from a perspective what I believe the Scripture is pointing to. Let's start with baptism. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. We'll kind of look at the beginning of baptism right there. Matthew chapter 3. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Matthew 3. Matthew 3, verse 13. It says there, then Jesus came up or came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him saying, what? He didn't say what, but he did say, man, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me. Jesus answered him. Now, let's listen to this answer. Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him to be baptized. After Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And there came a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Boy, can you imagine? I'm not sure I can. Jesus walking up to me and he wants me to baptize him. I mean, you talk about feeling unworthy. You talk about feeling, I mean, shouldn't this be the other way around? Shouldn't you be baptizing me? But what was Jesus' answer? He said, no, listen, here's what we're going to do, John. I want you to baptize me because this is, and I'm going to put a little swing on that righteousness there and just say this. This is the right thing to do. Now, why? Why is it the right thing for Jesus to be baptized? Is it the right thing because he's just been forgiven of his sins? No, because we know he didn't have any sins. Was it the right thing to do because he's been saved? No, he was never lost. So why? Why is it the right thing for Jesus to be baptized? Folks, Jesus is calling you and I into a relationship with him. A relationship in which we will follow. That's the message of Jesus. Come follow me. And what he's doing in baptism, the reason it's right that he do this is because Jesus is creating a place. He's creating a way where you and I can begin to follow him, begin to identify with him, begin to do what he does. Now, now think about this. It's hard following Christ, isn't it? I mean, when you think about what does it mean to follow Christ when I'm really angry at somebody, they've really wronged me, they've really hurt me. What's it mean to follow Christ in my marriage? What's it mean to follow Christ in in making decisions? What does it mean to follow Christ with that overwhelming temptation to sin? And man, it's hard to follow Christ. But think how easy that is. Jesus created a place that really is very, very easy. But it's the first step I can take. And I'm doing what he did. I'm following him. Now, part of what's broken us up into different denominations is the mode of baptism, how we baptize. Well, if the if what we're trying to do is follow Christ, how was he baptized? Well, notice the phrase here in the Bible. It says he immediately came up. Now, let's do a little scientific observation here. I'm going to suggest that it's very difficult to come up from the water unless you have first done what? Gone down into it. I've worked on it at the pool all week and I just I couldn't make it happen. I couldn't come up without going down in. No, you've you got to go down under the water. How, did you, how was Jesus baptized? He was plunged down underneath the water. So if I'm trying to figure out what should this look like, how should I do it, seems like a pretty good place to start is what did Jesus do? 
What happened to him? And then the second thing I want you to notice by this passage is what was the father's response? Man, the father, the dad looked down at his son and he said, son, man, I'm so proud of you. You bring me such pleasure. Now, now, what was the dad saying he was so proud of? What was he taking pleasure in? He was taking pleasure in the way his son had just created this way for you and me to begin following him. He got excited, I think, about it all. Here was Jesus setting this path that you and I were going to walk on. So I can look at Jesus' example as to how we might do baptism. Another thing we can look at is the meaning of the word baptism. The meaning of the word baptism means to immerse, to, to, to plunge underneath, to go underwater, and it means to identify with. Sounds like two very different words to come out of one word, doesn't it? Let me show you in a second how they come together. But that idea of immersion, it's interesting, not all the time, but there are times in the Greek language in this era that the New Testament was written where they would say a ship had been baptized. Now, if we were to translate that correctly into the English language, we'd say that's a sunken ship. Now, generally speaking, sunken ships tend to be where? Underwater. That's the meaning of the word. It's underwater. So clearly the word has that meaning. The ship knows that. And then I said that word means to identify with. And here's where identity and immersion come together. The main use of this word baptism in this culture was actually in a cloth dyeing process. When they were dyeing cloth, it was called baptizing. And they would, they would take a piece of, of uh, let's say, white cloth and they would immerse it. They would put it all the way down into the dye and it came up identified a new color. It went in white, but it came up red. It went in white, but it came up purple. It was now identified in a new way because of the immersion. So you're thinking, oh, that's, that's, really, that's really interesting. So what, what does sunken ships and cloth and dye have to do with, with the Christian life and, and us following Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn to Romans 6. We're going to run around here a little bit more. Romans 6, get past the Gospels and Acts and you'll be in Romans. Romans 6. And look at verse 1. Romans 6, verse 1, says there, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may multiply? Sounds like kind of a a funny question. Let me tell you what just happened in in chapter 5. Man, this is such good news. Good news for me. Pretty sure it's good news for all of you too. Chapter 5 says, God has got plenty of grace to cover any amount or any of kind of sin that is in your life. No matter how much is there, God has got plenty of grace to cover you. Now, now somebody could think about maybe, I don't know, taking advantage of that and thinking, well, gosh, I guess the more I sin, the more, the more a chance it gives God to be gracious. Chapter 6, verse 1. Should we continue in sin in order that grace may increase? Verse 2, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now what's going to happen in these next two verses is baptism is going to go back and forth between immersion and identity. Watch this. Or are you unaware that all of us who were immersed into Christ Jesus were also identified into his death? You see, there's a picture taking place under there, up there. As the person is baptized, they're what? They're buried. Just as Christ was died for sin and was buried, we die to sin and we are buried. 
So we're identifying with Christ in the death that he died, the burial that he experienced. And we go back on here and we see that we're going to identify there, uh, with his resurrection. Verse four, therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father. So we, too, may walk in a new way of life. Folks, baptism is a picture. It's a picture of what has already happened in my life. It is an outward picture of an inward reality. In that moment that you come to faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died on a cross as a payment for your sins and for my sins, that He was buried, that He rose again and is the Son of God at the right hand of God in heaven today. When you place all of your faith, confidence, and trust in that, at that moment you are born again. There is a spiritual life. There is a resurrection. You have died to sin. You have died to self. And now there is that birth that Jesus talks about. So that happens at the moment there's faith. And so then we go into the waters of baptism and we have a physical and outward picture of what's happened. So we baptize Randy. Here's Randy. He's dying to sin. He's died to self. And up, Randy is resurrected. A new life now in Christ. That's a picture of what has happened in my life. Now, folks, in the in the Baptist faith, we believe in what's called believers baptism. In other words, that is a picture of what has past tense. It has happened in the believers life. That is why we don't do infant baptism. And we love our infants. We care very much. We pray very much that they come up in the faith and they become a part of the, the family of faith. And a great deal of our ministry and work is to, to see that happen. We just don't believe that baptism is a part of that. As a matter of fact, I would go so far to say baptizing an infant makes that picture worthless. That infant hasn't died to sin and self. That infant hasn't made a decision for Christ. There's nothing like what's happening right here. Because see, the way Paul is using our baptism, see, we think of baptism as a one-time event. We, we just saw Dan baptized a moment ago. So Dan's been baptized. He's done, finished. Don't ever do that again in my life. No, Paul says, no, Dan, you, Randy. Man, when you're walking through this week and you're tempted, and we're going to be tempted, aren't we? Man, I, I'm, I'm tempted to lust. I'm tempted to greed. I'm tempted to, to anger. I'm tempted to getting even. Paul says, man, don't you remember your baptism? You died to that. You, you died to those things. Don't, don't give life to those things. Don't live those things. Remember your baptism, your identity. You've died to those things. You see, baptism, my, my first step in the faith is to be an ongoing motivation in my life to live to Christ and to die to sin. Now let me ask you a question. If we baptize an infant, how does baptism ever pick up that kind of meaning for that infant at any point in its life? It can't look back to its baptism and say, yes, that's the place where I came to faith in Christ, where I died to sin and self and I, and I lived for Christ. You see, the picture becomes worthless for an infant or as an unbeliever. And folks, we got multiple times that we've baptized unbelievers for a variety of different reasons. They don't have faith in Christ, but they, they go through this religious rite. They go through this religious ceremony. At that point, it's a worthless picture for them. You say, well, well, well what is the point of all this? It's imitating Christ. You see, folks, in that baptism, we're setting an agenda. We're setting an agenda. I've been doing 
been reading through Acts the last couple of days, last couple of weeks as a part of my daily devotions. And it's interesting when you and I challenge you to read this over the next couple of days. Every time somebody believes they're baptized. As a matter of fact, you know what word is often used in the book of Acts with the word baptized? The word immediately. The immediate. When do you set an agenda? At the beginning of the meeting or the end of the meeting? At the beginning of the project or at the end of the project? You set an agenda up front. And so when I enter those waters of baptism, I'm saying, you know what, here's my agenda. By, by, by faith in God, by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, my life is going to be about doing what Jesus did. I am going to follow Jesus beginning right here. And you set that agenda. And folks, I think when we make a decision for Christ, obviously, we, we want to we wanna plan it so that, that friends and family can come watch us be baptized. Dan had a number of family and friends over here stand up and enjoy and celebrate as he went through that. We, we want to we wanna be able to, you know, you've got to get everybody together and do that. But, but can I say something? If you're coming to Christ, if your profession of faith was, you know, six months ago, nine months ago, two years ago, and you've never taken on that baptism... You've missed something. God put that symbol there for us to set an agenda. And then throughout our Christian journey to be able to look back and remember where it started and the commitment I made there to die to sin, to die to self, and to live to God. When we make that profession of faith, we are to immediately be baptized. And as we come up out of those waters of baptism, we join the family of faith. That's when we become a part of the church family. And as a church family, the Lord sends you and me to this table. Now let's see if we can understand real quickly what this table is all about. Turn back to Matthew. Only two more passages. Matthew's one of them. Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26. And look at verse 26. Matthew 26, verse 26. Pretty familiar passage. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, from this moment, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in my Father's kingdom with you. After singing psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, you notice what Jesus said here. He said, take it, eat, take it, drink. It's a command. You and I, as believers, as followers of Christ, are commanded to come to this table. 1 Corinthians 11 adds that we're to come to this table and remember. Why do we need to remember? Because we forget. We forget to celebrate what's happened for us. We forget to celebrate and let that motivate us to live in it. So we are commanded to come here. We're commanded to do this. We are to take on this symbol in our life. Now the question becomes... Okay, what are the elements here that we're looking at? What, what actually is here at the table? And that, again, is an issue that divides up into different denominations. 
And there are some denominations, probably the, the Catholic Church would be the most notable of this. There's three different views of what happens to this. Theirs and, and some others too believe that when these elements arrive at this spot, they literally become, it's a miracle that takes place. It's called transubstantiation. Don't necessarily need to remember that word, but at least you've heard it now. That, that, that in the process of getting this table, there's a miracle that takes place where this literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It is his real body. It is his real blood. And when we come to this service, we are sacrificing Christ. We are reliving that sacrifice. That sacrifice is taking place again to cover our sins. And you hope as you come here that the sacrifice is good enough. You hope that you've done it right. You hope that you've done it enough and, and, and that that sacrifice will apply to you. Now, now there's a couple of reasons I, I have a problem with that. Again, here in my opinion, as I understand Scripture, first of all, we're not re-sacrificing Christ. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Everything necessary to bring me, to bring you back into a right relationship with God, everything necessary for us to be forgiven is complete. We don't need to keep working on it. We don't need to add to the sacrifice. Christ is not continually being sacrificed because Hebrews chapter 10 says it is one sacrifice, one sacrifice for all time, for all people. It's just once. It's not an ongoing thing. Plus, Jesus is not here being sacrificed again. He is at the right hand of the Father. Another problem I have with, with seeing this as the, the literal body and blood. Now, let's think about why they hold the view they hold. They, they hold that view because over and over and over in Scripture, it says, this is his body. I mean, that's what I just read, isn't it? it didn't say this is a symbol. It said, this is his body. This is his blood. I thought you Baptists believed in a, in, in a literal interpretation anyway. Well, why, why are you not taking this literally? Well, folks, we do believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture. Believe every single word of it means what it says. But in a literal interpretation, there are things like metaphors. And so when Jesus says things like, and I don't mean this at all to be funny. Here, it's just an example of metaphor. Jesus says, I'm a door. Well, he doesn't mean that he has a, a you know, a handle somewhere here and, and a hinge here and a hinge here. No, that's a metaphor suggesting he is the way. And when he offers this body and this blood, it is a metaphor to help us to remember, to, to help us to understand. I, you know, I can think of a couple of ways this is a metaphor. One is in, in helping us remember when we place that bread in our mouth and, and what we, we crush it with our teeth, right? Well, as you crush it with your teeth, what should be happening is you remember a passage like Isaiah 53 that says he was crushed for our iniquities. You know, as, I, as I'm crushing that bread, it's a reminder, man, his body was broken. His body was crushed because of me, because of my wrongdoing. And his body was the payment. As that juice flows over our tongue and into our mouth, it's a reminder that his blood flowed. His blood flowed so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be forgiven. Man, the miracle of this blood is that when it's done its work in my life, God looks at me just like he looks at his son. I am declared holy. I am declared righteous and I become a co-heir of Jesus. That's powerful blood. No work of mine can do that. No jumping through hoops trying to cover a bunch of religious ceremonies can do that. It's the blood of Christ that does that in my life. And so this metaphor helps us to remember that. 
You know, it's also a metaphor of trust. When you when you turn to John chapter six, Jesus is talking about this concept of his body and his blood. And when you get to the end of John six, it says, and this is where a lot of people stopped following him. It sounded like cannibalism. This is too difficult to understand. This is too hard to do. They just stopped. It sounded crazy. But it was a metaphor of trust. Very simple thing here, folks. Think about it this way. You trust what you put in your mouth, don't you? I mean, you don't put anything in your mouth. I mean, it, whether, maybe the way it smells, maybe the way it looks, you're just not sure what it is. If you don't trust it, it ain't going in, is it? I mean, folks, I can say this with great confidence because I just came from a foreign country. And you look at them. I want to know what animal that came from. You know, you look at and you know what? You know what? Everybody around can be eating it. I mean, everybody around can be eating it. But if you, for whatever reason, look at it and go, if you don't trust it, you're not putting it in your mouth, are you? That's what Jesus is saying. I want you to trust me so fully, so wholly, you would ingest me. It's that kind of faith. It's that kind of same kind of faith you have when you put something in your mouth. You're to trust me like that. Folks, when we come to this table. We're coming here and when Jesus commands us to do this, it doesn't just mean walk up here and, you know, throw it down, eat it and move on about your business. Man, our heart and our attitude is really important here. Let me read one more passage to you. We're almost finished. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians. Back through the Gospels, Acts, Romans, and into Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11. To some of the scariest verses I read in the New Testament. Boy, that kind of ups the ante, doesn't it? Oh man, what's that? Get that passage out. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Therefore... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself in this way. He should eat of the bread and drink of the cup for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why, folks, this is scary right here. That is why many are sick and ill among you. Look at that word many. I'd, have a, I'd, I'd struggle if it said some of you, a few of you. It says many. It gets worse. And many have fallen asleep. You know, folks, just because we have medical and scientific explanations for what happens now in the human body doesn't mean that God's not still in control. Just because we can put a label on it. Now, folks, this doesn't mean if this is a believer here at the Lord's table and they're treating this in an unworthy way that they've lost their salvation. It doesn't mean they're not still a child of God. It doesn't mean that God doesn't still love them. What this passage is meaning, though, is God is saying, you know what? You're not going to do that anymore. You're coming home. You're still loved. You're still forgiven. But you're not going to treat my son like that. Now we're going, Ooh, what is it we did to treat him like that? What does this passage say? It says, when I come here in an unworthy way. See, folks, when I come to this table, I'm celebrating. I'm celebrating that I've been forgiven. I've been freed from sin. I've been forgiven of all sin. And I come to this table to celebrate that fact. But if I come here celebrating while I'm still out living in the sin. See, folks, we have to remember Christ freed us from sin. He didn't free us 
to sin and it be okay. He freed us from sin. So if I come to this table and I'm celebrating that fact, but I've got unconfessed, I've got unrepentant, I've got habitual sin in my life, that's mocking the sacrifice that took place on that cross. And so the Scripture says, what? Examine yourself. That, that's why we always encourage you as, as the deacon body is handing these elements out. It, it's a time of reflection. It's a time to be meditative. It's a time to say, God, is there something between me and you? Is there a sin between me and you? Is there a sin between me and somebody else? I, I want to confess that. Sometimes we know the sins that are there. And we want to confess that. Sometimes we need to listen to what he says. And, and when he answers, we confess that. And boy, we confess it with the great news. He will forgive. There, there's not a question here. Well, I, you know, sometimes I don't want to go confess something because I'm not sure how they're going to act. Folks, the Scripture tells us how God's going to act every single time. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess, He will forgive you. He will forgive. But we've got to confess. So whether it's in those few moments or whether you've seen the bulletin, oh, they're, they're doing, bapti- they're, they're doing uh, Lord's Supper tonight or they're doing Lord's Supper next Sunday. Man, I want to come to that table and I want to be thinking. I want to be praying. I want to be right with God so that I can come here and celebrate. I want to receive His forgiveness so that I can celebrate it. Not take advantage of His forgiveness and then come here and mock it. We need to be careful with this. Oh, folks, as you know, as we come to this table, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. This body was broken so that we could be forgiven as a payment for our sins. That blood was spilled. It was poured out to wash us, to cleanse us, to give us forgiveness. We come here together in a community. Did you hear that word community? You know, folks, here again, there's other denominations that will, will do this a little bit more often. You know, I don't have a problem giving communion to an individual in certain circumstances and times, but this is not an individual event. This is a family event. This is a family table. This is a community table. As a matter of fact, I only read a few verses in 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's Supper. Go back this afternoon and read that whole thing. You know what all that stuff he just said was about? A lot of people were coming here just thinking this was about them. You know what Paul said? If you're coming to this table and you think this is just about you, go home. Imagine Paul saying that. That's exactly what he said. Go home. No, this is a family time. Folks, you look across this room. You know what? There's more things that separate us than make us alike. From skin color to income to education to gender. And isn't that what America does? It separates us into all little kinds of subgroups. And all of our differences. But folks, when we look at those waters, when we look at this table, when we look at our salvation, this is what we have in common. We have in common what is most important. We have in common what lasts. We have in common what sets us as an army into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, that baptism is my identity. And the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, reminds me of what that identity cost. Not what it cost me, what it cost Christ. And so when we see somebody baptized, it should lead us to think about our baptism. Am I following? How close? When I come to, these, when I come to this table, I need to be thinking about where am I missing it? Where am I not following very closely? Where am I not following at all? And I want to confess that and I want to receive His forgiveness so that I can come here and remember and celebrate. 
You see, folks, as we watch this being observed, as we go through it in our life or we come here regularly and celebrate, this should purify and strengthen our resolve to love and to serve God. To love and serve each other. It should strengthen our resolve that in every step I take this week, I'm thinking about, is this the step Jesus would take? Is this the way he would take it? I would say these symbols, these reminders are pretty significant. The fact we've seen these today, been a part of these today, should change what happens tomorrow. If it doesn't, there's a problem. Let's pray. Father, we're sorry that we forget. We forget that commitment we made when we entered those waters to follow you. We're sorry that we forget the cost that you paid so that we were forgiven. And because we forget, we come to this table with sometimes a cavalier attitude. Come to this table just kind of going through rote things without any thought or mind to it. Oh God, as we think back on our own baptism, as we watch somebody else, as we come to this table, we want to celebrate, we want to remember, and we want to be resolved, strengthened in our commitment to follow you. And Father, I'm so thankful that your son came. That his body was broken and his blood was spilled to cover those places and those times that I don't follow very closely. That I don't follow very well. Lord, as we observe this now and as we leave here today, oh God, may we follow closely. You've declared us to be just like your son and that's how we're going to be rewarded. Until that day comes, may we live like it. May we live like somebody who's been declared to be righteous and holy. God, in these moments now, I would pray for every one of us in this stillness and this quietness that, that we would just ask you a very simple question. Father, what's between you and me? What do I need to confess in this room right now? What do maybe I need to go and, and make right later? God, we want to we wanna come to this table. We want to obey you, but we want to come here rightly the right attitude and the right mindset and the right heart. Enjoying the forgiveness we have. It's in Jesus' name we pray.